This is your host, Bruce Ash, stuffed from Turkey and Stuffings, along with Inside Track co-host... Ed Wilkinson, coming, pounds heavier. <laughs> coming to you live from the modern KVOI broadcast complex here in Tucson, Arizona. Eb? Hey, thanks for tuning in to a special Soul of Politics edition of Inside Track. We hope you'll stay with us for another great show. Our special guest after the first break for the rest of the show today is author and Claremont scholar Glenn Elmers to discuss his new book, The Sound of Politics. Soul of Politics. The the Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America, published by Encounter Books. This portion of today's show brought to you by our good friend Eric Rudin and Essential Pest. Whether the problem scorpions, centipedes, roaches, termites, pack rats, or any other pest in the home or office, call the professional team at Essential Pest Control. Their well-trained staff using the most modern techniques will be prepared to keep your home or office safe and pest-free. Call the Essential Pest Control Pros at 886-3029 and let them keep your keep you pest-free. Oh yeah, and don't forget Essential can help you with your property and their leafy weeds also when the winter rains come. Call now before the rains for their pre-emergent wood prevention. Today's show also brought to you by Jamie and Gary Kipper at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call Jamie or her steel pro, Craig Beach, at 209-1576. Whether you're building a new shed or office, Tucson Iron has the best prices around for their steel products. Call and or go by the yard at 701 East 32nd, East 36th. Yeah, don't go to 32nd. They'll be, they'll be upset. And see for yourself. Essential Pest and Tucson Iron and Steel Surplus are two great locally owned, family-run businesses you depend on. Bruce and I do, so should you. Eb, I hope you enjoyed a bountiful Thanksgiving. You said you're five pounds heavier. I doubt it. You look pretty good to me. It was great. You had a bunch of kids and grandkids over. Had kids, grandkids, uh, turkey, stuffing, green beans, homemade cranberry sauce, and I need to make you some. I, pr- oh, yeah, I promised I you last year. You get yours from the can? No, Trader oh, okay. Joe's. Oh, tra- okay. So from the can. <laughs> a plastic tub. <laughs> oh, the plastic tub. Okay, great. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, have n- no Thanksgiving's complete without pumpkin pie and whipped cream and I, bourbon. Oh, well, of course. So I understand that you have a, a favorite uh, post-Thanksgiving movie that you watch a lot. I do. I do. It's great. Fiddler on the Roof. Every post-Thanksgiving I watch that. It's wonderful. Uh, after uh, after the first of the year, we're going to do a ceremonial circumcision on Eb when he becomes officially a Hebrew. Um, <laughs> any guy who watches that show over and over again deserves a little cut. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank God you only work for tips. So what are you the most thankful for at this, Hall- at this uh, Thanksgiving? <laughs> You know, there's so many things to be thankful for, family, friends, but truly, we live in the greatest country in the world, no matter what anybody says, and I'm thankful that we're able to overcome everything that gets thrown at us to ensure that we keep this country great. It's amazing that our country, it's taught in the schools how lousy a country we are, but in spite of that... And this is the greatest country in the world, just like you said, maybe in the history of of of, of our of our world. 
Um, and notwithstanding these things, you know, the, the true sense of freedom here is that people have the ability to do that. They may be wrong in doing so, but they have the ability to do that uh, without penalty. And in spite of them saying how terrible this country is, people are coming by the hundreds of thousands to get into this country. Yeah, they are. And in spite of what like the BLM was saying, you know, it's terrible that we're on stolen land. I don't see them moving. They're still here, I see, they? I see them staying here and buying mansions. They're not moving out of here. Right. They know it's the greatest country in the world. Right, right. Well, on Thanksgiving, I posted a simple message declaring how thankful I was to my family, friends, colleagues, and clients, and received many dozens of affirmations, which I am doubly thankful for. I also want to talk... Uh, and thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. Uh, we are friends, I think, uh, all of you who listen in here, and will continue to produce shows for you, which we think provides insight and thoughtful discussion. Eb, I include you as a friend, and you're a part of my family, and thank I you, hope you're a part of yours. For those um, uh, those of you who work with or know Eb, um, you know what I'm saying, that Ed, Eb is an extraordinary friend to all. Um, and if you'll allow me um, to add uh, that, we had a little, uh, little bit of, oh, from Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. There we go. All right. <laughs> There's Ab doing, doing the cha-cha with zero mustel. Anyway, if you'll allow me to add that in giving thanks, I also think it's important to show contrition and appeal to our better instincts, and also to ask for forgiveness from friends and others. Uh, none of us are perfect. I am far from perfection, and I ask your understanding uh, for those I may have uh, failed or hurt, intentionally or unintentionally. Thank you all for your understanding, and I will try to do better. Before we go to the break tomorrow night, uh, the Jewish world, which I'm a part of, celebrates the first night of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights which commemorates the miracle which fueled the light in the temple for eight days, as well as the strength of Judah Maccabee and the freedom fighters he led who defeated the Greek uh, oppressors of the Jewish people in 164 BCE. That's before the Common Era. Judah Maccabee, the hammer, as he is known, is still a symbol which we see in the strength today of the Jewish people. At almost five years old, Bodie Paul Ash and his little sister, Emmanuel Lane Ash, will hear about the Maccabees tomorrow night when we light candles, eat latkes, fried in symbolic oil of the lamp, and exchange gifts. Tomorrow's, tomorrow is also the observance of my mother Luana's passing, which was in 1988. Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Back with our special guest for the rest of the show today, Dr. Glenn Elmers, author of his new book, The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America. We'll be right back after these messages. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. 
So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Before we get to our very special guest and author of The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and The Fight for America, now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. No supply chain problems on cabinets at Corazon. Call Monday and speak to Allie or Joy at 488-2266. The new custom Corazon Cabinets in our home are not only beautiful, but well-built with great craftsmanship and they are extraordinarily functional as well. Corazon Cabinets, luxury, luxury created with love at a price everyone can afford. On to our very special guest this afternoon, Dr. Glenn Elmers, author of the new book, The Soul of Politics, just released by Encounter Books. Glenn Elmers holds a PhD in politics from Claremont Graduate University, where he studied with Harry Jaffa. He is a visiting research fellow with Hillsdale College and a senior fellow with Claremont. He has also served as a speechwriter for two cabinet secretaries and has published articles and essays in the Claremont Review of Books, the Review of Metaphysics. He is a smart guy if he's doing the metaphysics thing. Modern Age, Law and Liberty, National Review, and American Greatness. Welcome to Inside Track, Dr. Elmers. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Um, you were a speechwriter for two cabinet sec- secretaries. Can I inquire who you wrote for? <clears throat> yes, they were both uh, energy secretaries uh, under the second President Bush. So uh, first Spencer Abraham and then Samuel Bodman. And then I did some speechwriting for a small regulatory agency uh, so I've had some experience in the federal government. Hmm. My son was a speechwriter for the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services uh, under oh. George W. Bush's administration. He was in the White House okay. for his brother's departure ceremony in the Oval Office. And when President George W. Bush asked him what he did, my son said he was a speechwriter for the U.S. 
uh, CIS director. And the president replied, no, you're a policymaker. My son was speechless <laughs> as the president replied. Every time he speaks in front of a group or issues a statement, you wrote, you are making policy. And uh, he says, you should consider yourself a policymaker. <laughs> That's great. That's very nice. <laughs> By the way, speaking of, um, speaking of uh, connections, I just ran into someone you may know uh, up in Pinell County. Do you know the Sheriff Mark Lamb there? Yes, yes very well. we do. He's a, he's a great guy. I just had the pleasure of meeting him. He's really a terrific and impressive fellow, and uh, you guys are lucky to have him down there in Arizona. Yeah, we are. We we live in, in occupied territory right now here in Pima <laughs> County, uh, but Mark right. is a is a great sheriff. Right, so right, right. Hey, so, Glenn, this Ev here. Quick question: Here you are, speechwriter for for cabinet level secretaries. When you do this, how do you do this? Do they give you an idea of what they want? And then you go putting yeah. it together, or, or how does that work? Yeah, so it varies. You know, if you're writing for the president, there's a much more or less. A good friend of mine uh, worked in the National Security Council and then wrote for both President uh, George W. Bush and President Trump. And there's a much more elaborate process when you're at the very pinnacle. Um, in my position, the Energy Department, uh, the speeches are much more policy-focused. Uh, they're much more sort of standardized. You're not setting national, worldwide policy in every speech the way the president is. And so you meet with the staff, uh, and, and there's a process. Um, but uh, unlike uh, uh, Sun, I, I didn't consider myself that much of a policymaker, since it was really the policy staff that would outline what we wanted to say. And then my, myself, I was really crafting the words uh, uh, more so than setting policy. So, Glenn, I consider myself to be a movement conservative. I've been involved in the Republican Party for many years as a senior national party official, been part of poor, uh, four presidential campaigns. I watched with awe as a 12-year-old uh, Arizona's own presidential nominee, Barry Goldwater, gave his acceptance speech at the Cow uh, Palace in San Francisco in 1964, declaring extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice is no vice, and moderation in the defense of justice is no virtue, um, but never even knew the name Harry Jaffa existed until I listened to five of the most impactful radio hours you spent with Larry Arn and Hugh Hewitt. How the heck did I miss this guy for 57 years? <laughs> well, he's, um, he was very influential in the classroom, had many, many, many uh, students who went on to great things. Um, he was sort of known in conservative circles, uh, if you pay close attention to National Review, but wasn't quite as famous as some others. But uh, he's one of these people who had a great influence disproportionate to his fame, you might say. And one of the things that uh, he did was, as you say, write that 1964 acceptance speech for Barry Goldwater. He was brought in as a young professor of political philosophy to sort of advise the campaign on history and political science matters. And um, he wasn't even the, the, the main speechwriter. He had been watching the, the convention unfold and was appalled at the abuse that was being heaped on Goldwater by Scranton and, and uh, some of the other moderate Democrats and just wrote a memo to Goldwater and invoked some of the, the things he, he had learned from his career studying political philosophy and used those lines. And Goldwater liked him so much. He assigned Jaffa to write the nomination speech and insisted that those lines be put in. And mm. then, of course, they became world famous. Mm. Um, and that was just really the beginning of Jaffa's career. He lived until 2015 uh, at the age of 96 and produced 
just wonderful scholarship and writings uh, that I tried to touch on a little bit in the book. A little bit. William F. Buckley, uh, one of Jaffa's close friends, once wrote, if you think it is hard arguing with Harry, with Harry Jaffa, try agreeing with him. <laughs> right, no. right. No. What he meant by that is Jaffa cared so much about the truth, about getting it right. He particularly wanted to understand the meaning of America, the meaning of the American founding, what exactly the founders were trying to do, where they got their philosophic ideas, what their understanding of citizenship was, what he called the moral conditions of freedom. And he thought it was important to get that just right. And so you might think you're agreeing with him, but if you got, you know, equality wrong or consent wrong or natural rights wrong, he wouldn't hesitate to correct you, <laughs> including his friend Bill Buckley. <laughs> mm. So I understand that despite his uh, tendency to be argumentative, he yeah. during these during these debates, he was kind, fair. And you've described described him as being cheerful in his arguments, yeah. haven't you? I have. He was cheerful. He was always an optimist. Um, you know, uh, I think even today, it, you know, things are things are certainly getting tense in this country. Um, one of the things that made him an optimist is he believed in something that he liked to call the metaphysical freedom of the human mind. Mm. Right? He rejected this doctrine that a lot of people on the left have. It really comes out of Marxism, of what's called historical determinism. That means history or the laws of physics or something override human freedom. And, and really, uh, uh, the future is, is determined, is set. And Jaffa always insisted, no, human freedom means that we, have, we always have moral choices. We can always choose the right thing or the wrong thing, the noble thing or the ignoble thing. And that means that victory or success, no matter how unlikely, is always possible as long as human freedom exists. So that made him an optimist. You know, the founder of this show, Emil Franzi, uh, may he rest in peace, um, I, I hosted, co-hosted the show with Emil for about 10 years before he passed, and um, he never mentioned Harry Jaffa's name, but he must have been reading and believing the same sort of things because, uh, you know, he always talked about, you know, the left and communism with their moral relativism and, and their sense of history was on their side and so on, and he never, ever gave up hope in Francie's life, that that freedom and liberty was going to win out. Right, right, right. And Jaffa thought, you know, sometimes things look very bleak, and sometimes the bad guys do win, at least temporarily. Um, but, you know, that's nothing in, in human affairs, nothing in life is ever permanent. Uh, and so there can be setbacks. Uh, you know, there's no guarantee that, that uh, justice will always prevail, uh, but, you know, there's always another chance, uh, is one way of putting it. It's interesting you should talk about optimism. Uh, I've got a, uh, I've got a uh, painting on my wall in the office that says, Optimism is the only realism. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. What and is you know, the other we, sort of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and then and then when we talk about uh, uh, Harry being such an optimist and that, I guess you could say us as conservatives, we have to be optimists. What does that say about the uh, the Democrats? Would you say that them, the BLM people, are all pessimists? No, I would say that they have a tendency to be um, a little bit complacent. I mean, this this fixation on the idea of historical determinism and progress and that history is on your side, uh, first of all, it makes you arrogant. It makes you unwilling to 
persuade other people because you just assume that you're right. And I think we can see this more and more in the way the country is going and the, 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 the more intolerant and regressive that the left is becoming. Now that they have power, they're so convinced that they're right because they believe in this idea of a, a deterministic history that represents their point of view. Um, so I don't think they're cynics. I think that they're um, determinists, and that makes them complacent and arrogant. Glenn, we talk a lot on this show about freedom of speech in schools, on college campuses, as well as in the public square. Um, the modern American left was founded on free speech, the, the free speech movement at Berkeley. Uh, it, yeah. But it sure seems that freedom of speech and freedom of expression is out of vogue today. What would your professor, Dr. Jaffa, say about the state of free speech today in America? Well, he'd be very alarmed. Um, you know, he used to love to quote this line from Thomas Jefferson, that truth will prevail if uh, not deprived of her natural weapons, uh, uh, free speech and debate. And Jaffa said, but he pointed out, uh, that's true, but sometimes it is deprived of its natural weapons, right? If you control the media and you spread disinformation, if you censor people, um, if you have a chokehold on, on uh, dissemination of information, if, if, if uh, the major media organs and the, the powers that be collaborate to lock out certain voices, then free speech is deprived of her natural weapons. And that's a real problem. Um, the, 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 the way that the left has abandoned free speech is truly shocking to me. I mean, going all the way back to John Stuart Mill, to be a liberal meant to almost define yourself by this idea of freedom of speech. And it shocks me that so many people on the left don't see that, uh, you know, this has to apply to everyone or it applies to no one, just like things like due process of law. You know, whatever happened to those old ACLU liberals who understood that if you don't apply equal protection to everyone, then it's in jeopardy for all of us. And I don't know where all those old fashioned liberals went, but they sure seem scarce now, don't they? They do. Yeah. Why, are, why are they why are the liberals so afraid of having conservative speakers on college campuses? Uh, yeah, that's a complicated question. I mean, Jaffa had, uh, there, I, I get into the book a little bit. It might be a little bit too detailed for our discussion here, but in the book I talk a little bit about how the, 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 the relativism and the sort of the tolerance of the 60s uh, sounded nice, but in a way it opened itself up to the most intolerant voices taking control because it, in a way, new, no regime, no government, no political society can ever be truly neutral on moral questions, right? People aren't just built to be indifferent to right and wrong. Every, every uh, person, every political community has to have some sense of justice, of what it stands for, of what it aims for, of what the good life is, of, of what is right and wrong for human beings. And ultimately, the idea of being completely neutral on that just doesn't work. And so the most intolerant voices will then emerge. And on the left... That's what we've seen. The intolerant voices have now emerged. They've taken control. They're not interested in debate. And this is where relativism ultimately leads. It never, the idea of complete tolerance never really lasts over the long term. And in the sense, not, not in the sense of religious tolerance, but in the sense of complete moral relativism. That never lasts because it just opens the door to the intolerant. So we have a, a copy, my copy of the book, The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America sitting on our on our uh, uh, booth table here, uh, looking at it. Um, I think this is this is this is a, a a proud selling point on this book. It's a great primer, I think, for future statesmen and stateswomen. Don't you think? 
That was my intention. So uh, we're talking a little bit about the state of the country. It seems to me that as things become more and more tense, as the country is more and more divided, as the sense of crisis increases, we're turning more and more to fundamental questions, essential questions about the meaning of government, equality. Where do our rights come from? Consent. Do we still have consent? Uh, what is the purpose of constitutionalism? What are these different conceptions of justice that we seem so divided over? And those fundamental questions are not impossible to understand, but it helps to have a teacher who thought about them for his whole life, who tried to explain them to people, and did so from the perspective of cherishing and admiring what the founders did and trying to preserve that. And that's what Jaffa devoted his career to, and that's what I tried to explain in the book. Glenn, my co-host, Ed Wilkinson, has some more questions for you. Sure, sure. Sure, Glenn. Okay, so most people think that modern American conservative movement started with Bill Buckley, God, man at Yale, but didn't the conservative movement in America really start with Leo Strauss? Well, uh, you're talking about two different things. So uh, at the political popular level, certainly Buckley did a great deal to set the stage, to bring conservative arguments to a wider audience. You know, he helped uh, establish a sort of political groundswell for the, the Reagan revolution. On the intellectual level, uh, and a lot of people, if you've not heard of uh, Harry Jaffe, you probably haven't heard of Leo Strauss either. But Leo Strauss was one of the most incredible, formative intellects of the 20th century, a professor of political philosophy who had fled Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s, came to the United States uh, for a little while in New York, where actually Jaffe was his student and then talked for many years at the University of Chicago, and revived the serious study of political philosophy against the dominant, what we've called moral relativism or positivism, that absolutely dominated the academy. And Strauss, in a way, it's hard to believe this today, but almost single-handedly revived the idea that we could take the ancient uh, political philosophers like Plato and Aristotle seriously, that we could take the Western philosophical tradition seriously, that we still had something to learn from the past. That had been rejected so totally and so dogmatically that no one even considered it. And Strauss single-handedly revived this idea that there are permanent truths and enduring wisdom that all human beings can learn from. So in that sense, yeah, there would be no conservative movement on the intellectual level with, if, if Strauss had not done that. Well, tell us about Strauss's connection with Jaffa. Sure. So as I said, Strauss uh, came over from Nazi Germany, uh, uh, revived in this incredible way the study of political philosophy as something serious, not just antiquarian interest, not just historical studies, but as a source of real wisdom. And Harry Jaffa, my teacher, who the book is about, was one of Strauss's first students in New York at a place called the New School for Social Research. This is right in the middle of uh, World War II. Uh, Jaffa couldn't serve because he kept failing the eye exam. He wore these thick glasses his whole life. And he, he became a student of Leo Strauss and was just bowled over by uh, this discovery of uh, this idea of permanent truths, which is something he hadn't learned at Yale. He was an undergraduate at Yale and an English major, but always interested in politics and had just assumed, had just absorbed this, this dogma of moral relativism, that, that there are no permanent uh, moral truths. And Strauss opened his eyes and what Jaffa did, and this guy Strauss had many, many students, influential students, but Jaffa was in a way the first to apply this to America. So this same idea that we can learn from the past, that there are permanent moral truths, he applied that to the study of the Founding Fathers and to Lincoln, that these guys still have something to say, that what they teach about political justice, about human nature, about rights, 
was true then and still true today. And, and in a way, that's what uh, Jaffa did, which was to, to apply the lessons he learned from Strauss to the study of America. Glenn, uh, let's stop here for a moment to catch our breath. Mr. Mm-hmm. Producer, let's go ahead and take our bottom-of-the-hour break here to listen to a few messages. When we return, we'll spend the rest of the hour with our special guest, Glenn Elmers, and continue our look at his book, The Soul of Politics. We'll be right back to talk about Harry Jaffa and Barry Goldwater. And I also want to talk about Lincoln and Shakespeare. Sure. Okay, let's take that break now. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing. And then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We're here with uh, Glenn, and we have a couple of questions for you. Um, hang on just a second here. Strauss wrote about truth from past great thinkers, such as Plato, Aristotle, and the American founders, about permanent truth, source of wisdom from the founding fathers. All men are created equal is a permanent truth. Why was his thinking so important? Uh, if you think that the, the universities today are corrupt and full of moral relativism, you'd certainly be right. But in a way, there's now actually a challenge to that. There's, there's uh, books that have challenged that. There are, there are colleges that challenge that. But in the 1950s, believe it or not, that viewpoint was even more dominant than it is now. No serious scholar, no serious intellectual even challenged the idea that we're all, all human beings are kind of trapped in the time and place they live, and what's true for us right here and now in modern America wasn't true at any other time. And so there's really nothing to learn from the past. Uh, There's no way to communicate across the ages. There's no transcendent, uh, there are no transcendent principles of justice that can guide us. Uh, We're all just sort of in flux. 
uh, with nothing permanent to stand on. And that idea, again, on an intellectual level, was, was almost total in, in the whole Western world. Uh, if, if people read Plato and Aristotle, they read them as sort of historical curiosities. Okay, what did a Greek thinker in the 5th century BC mm. think? Okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't tell us anything. And Strauss said, no. What Aristotle says, for instance, about virtue and about the good life and about morality in this wonderful book called The Nicomachean Ethics, since human nature doesn't change, that's still true today. And by the way, this wonderful book by Aristotle is one of Jaffa's favorite and taught many generations of students and many, many college students who studied with Jaffa said his course on The Nicomachean Ethics, which is about how do human beings live a good life by developing moral virtue. Many people said that was the best college course they ever had from Harry Jaffa. I can imagine. But anyway, that's, yeah, that's this, the breakthrough, which again is, is hard to appreciate today, looking back 70 years or so. Strauss really broke through the, the complete dogmatic belief that uh, the past is dead and gone uh, and revived this idea that there are, there's the possibility of permanent hum, human wisdom based on the idea of enduring truths about nature and human nature. So, Glenn, how do we revive the interest in these permanent truths, these permanent moral truths? Um, well, one way is to point out that nature doesn't really change. Uh, nature is more recalcitrant and stubborn uh, than the left wants to admit, uh, right? And we see this all the time. Uh, you know, uh, we, we can manipulate the, the hormones of little children but it turns out that uh, they tend to be very unhappy. Uh, you know, communism was, in a way, a, a long, horrific experiment to change human nature, and it failed because it, it just doesn't work. Um, we're born into a natural order that we do not make, and we are bound by those laws of nature, which are not just mechanical, not just the laws of physics, but also apply to uh, how human beings operate. What is the good life? What is the right thing to do? Uh, those laws are just as permanent and just as fixed as the laws of physics. And the left, the whole project of the left, in a way, is an attempt to deny that. But every attempt to deny it ends in, in catastrophe and brutality and death. Uh, so uh, that's one great lesson that Jaffa was always trying to teach. Well, that brings me to my next uh, question. You appeared on Tucker Carlson today recently and said, that the Declaration of Independence, when read closely, is a radical and revolutionary document with language that might not fly in today's world. In the, <laughs> in the details of the Declaration, he exposed that it states government exists solely to protect those who are governed. Now, we ask this question of every candidate who is running for public office. What is the stated purpose of government? And those who don't correctly answer that, Bruce and I feel have no business being an elected official. Why is it so important that, and why have so many politicians forgotten about this maxim? Well, first of all, politicians, like most everyone else, uh, went through public schools where this stuff has just been completely forgotten. It's not taught. It's taught at all. It's taught incorrectly. Um, you know, the, 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 the left has very successfully, unfortunately, taken over the culture, and one of their prime targets has been to take over the public education system, and so they've distorted and suppressed uh, the proper understanding of American history and the proper understanding of our political principles. And, of course, there's all sorts of terrible incentives now in Washington that rewards just the wrong sort of things. And so, you know, 
there's there's all sorts of factors that go into pushing the wrong kind of people into politics and not enough incentives to bring the right kind of people into politics. And but but it's our job as citizens and it's your job as people who influence public opinion to do exactly what you're doing is hold our politicians to account, remind people where the idea of, of legitimate government government comes from, what consent means, what equality means. And to hold our public officials to those things and make sure they understand them. So I'm so glad uh, to hear that you do that every time. That's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. You know, we when I was growing up, we had to memorize the preamble to the yeah. Constitution, and sure. and and uh, you know regurgitate exactly what it meant and why it meant that. And today they have no idea. Right. And there's literally yeah. no connection between civics and history. No. You talked about that with Hugh Hewitt when you did the interview with him, and I, right. and I never heard it quite put as concisely as you both did, but, but that is part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, but the left <laughs> will basically admit this uh, uh, when you press them. What is the 1619 Project? What is basically the whole uh, campaign in public schools now by the left, it's it's to refound the country on different principles, right? It's to it's to uh, uh, re- replace the founders with a different set uh, understanding of government, a different kind of founding, uh, a different understanding of where legitimate government comes from, with a very radically different notion. And so, what we're seeing is a kind of attempt at what in, in uh, we uh, academic scholarly geeks call the regime which just means the whole political community, the government and society put together, you know, everything the nation stands for. And the left is trying to replace our regime, the regime created by the founding fathers, with something altogether different. That's really what the 1619 Project is. It's to re-found the country. You know, Bruce and I were talking before the show about this and also about uh, Black Lives Matter and and how they were so anti uh, against Thanksgiving and everything else. The, The one thing in common is you don't see them moving. You don't see them leaving this country to go from whence their ancestors came. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You see hundreds of thousands of people fighting to get into this country. You know, it, it's right. completely opposite. So with that, the title of your book suggests that Harry Jaffa was fighting to save America. So what was his fight about? His fight, so he uh, thought everyone has their, their specialty and uh, he, he got into politics a little bit, as we've talked about, in 1964 as a speechwriter, and said, okay, I've done that. <laughs> now I'm going to withdraw from political fi- uh, life and focus on what I do best, which is to be a teacher and a scholar and a writer. And so he saw his job in saving America to understand and explain the principles as a teacher, as an author, as a scholar, to really dig into where did the founders get these philosophical ideas, how do they tie together? What's the connection, for instance, between uh, reason and revelation, right? Biblical morality and uh, philosophical wisdom. Uh, you know, where did this idea of liberal to- of, uh, of religious liberty come from? Um, what is the proper meaning of equality, for instance? That's something that's so completely misunderstood today. And he tried to explain over and over and over again how people get this wrong and what it really means, which is not equality of outcomes, not government inserting itself into everyone's life to create equity, which means suppressing all of our natural differences to make everyone the same, but the reverse of that, which is the government providing equal opportunity for all so that our diversity of talents and, and interests can flourish, leading to unequal outcomes, which is what 
the whole idea is. So he tried to explain these things over and over again. And again, I've tried to introduce the reader to some of this uh, in the book, which is really my intention to just lead people to this uh, really wonderful and amazing teacher that I had. Let's take a trip in the Wayback Machine for a couple minutes. We were talking about Barry Goldwater before. Um, mm-hmm. As we might recall, if if anybody was either experiencing history at the time uh, in the making or uh, reading about it since, Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, was fighting for the nomination in 1964, yep. primarily against moderates of the day, Nelson Rockefeller and, and William Scranton, uh, primarily. They called Goldwater a radical uh, just like some referred to Martin Luther King as a radical. Uh, yep. We talked about your intervention memo by Jaffa uh, to that really blunted uh, the moderates Goldwater was trying to battle against. Um, so tell me, Glenn, if Gold, Goldwater's victory, and it really happened at the convention, um, that was the days when conventions mattered, I guess. Um, right. It really was because a guy like Harry Jaffa fought for the man and for the ideal, and really, I think, maybe on the side of uh, of our country's history, uh, when he suggested uh, taking this radical course against the others, didn't he? He did. He did. Again, you know, we talked a little earlier about optimism. You know, Jaffa liked to say that you never, you never know uh, whether uh, what you do will succeed or fail, and so the, what you do is you have a moral obligation to do the right thing. And then whether you succeed or not, that's up to, you know, God or, or, or chance or whatever. But as long as you're doing the right thing, then maybe success will come, uh, even against all your expectations. And that's sort of what happened with Goldwater. Can I just say a quick word about the word radical and also the word extremism, yeah. which was the thing that got everyone excited? Because now we're hearing the word extremism again a lot. All the time. So... Jaffa absolutely rejected this idea of moral relativism, but he also understood that every understanding, he loved this word prudence, which means knowing the right thing to do in the right way at the right time. It's not relativism, but it does mean that circumstances always have to shape and guide what we do, right? The right thing under one circumstance is not necessarily the right thing under another circumstance. And the same idea applies to radical and extremist. There are times when you have to be an extremist. You know, circumstances call for it. In war, you know, tremendous sacrifices might be called for that are not appropriate elsewhere. And by the way, radical, which sounds like an extremist word, comes from the Latin word for root, and it means getting to the root of things, getting to the fundamental issue. And sometimes getting to the fundamentals or being an extremist is, in fact, the right thing to do. So that's just a quick point that that comes out in that Goldwater speech and that Jaffa tried to explain all the time. Yeah, great points uh, that sh- that you made. Um, how did how did Harry Jaffa come to write that speech? Um, you, you, he was in academia. Uh, was yeah. it was it him that wanted in, or did somebody know about him? Um, and and how did how did his interaction actually occur? I, I am very friendly with somebody who was extraordinarily inside of the 1964 uh, convention. And um, I'm looking for the answer for that person as well who may not know it. So uh, 
Uh, Jaffa had been uh, more active in, re- in Republican p- political circles. He was at this time uh, a professor at Ohio State University, where, where he was friends with Woody Hayes, by the way. He had not yet, gone out to Claremont. <laughs> he had not yet gone out to Claremont. That would come a little later. But he had been involved uh, with some sort of conservative academic conferences at a place called the American Enterprise Institute, got to know a few people, including Carl Hess, who was the chief speechwriter for Goldwater. And his name just came to the attention of the campaign when he sort of volunteered. And and he was brought in first just as a sort of an advisor, uh, you know, a a scholar who could offer a little background on things. And he, as I said, he wrote this memo when the word extremism. So so Scranton and Rockefeller kept calling Goldwater an extremist. And Jaffa recalled, by the way, there's another little background to this is the year before Martin Luther King had given, given his famous letter from a Birmingham jail speech. And he also pointed out that extremism depends on what you're being extremist about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and King pointed out that Jesus was an extremist, St. Paul was an extremist, Jefferson was an extremist. So it depends what you're extreme for. And Joppa thought, yeah, that's right. And by the way, I know a lot about all these guys like St. Paul and Thomas Aquinas and Jefferson. I've studied them. And he sort of uh, keyed that up and sort of uh, keyed off of that and wrote, uh, Goldwater, this memo saying, uh, and Joffre threw in also Aristotle, whom he knew a lot about. Uh, and so, you know, making this point that extremism depends on what you're extreme for, <laughs> that really makes all the difference. And Goldwater loved it so much that, as I mentioned, he assigned Joffre the task of writing the whole speech. So I want to, I want to now go walk away from the Wayback Machine. We're now, um, in 2016 to 2020. Um, yeah. Period was Donald Trump an extremist in the same fashion as Goldwater? He was in his own way. Um, he was extreme by the, in one thing, which is to see through or break through or overcome what you might call the uniparty establishment. Right. So for a long time in post-war America, the Republicans and you know I'm I'm a lifelong Republican and I was a Republican appointee, but more and more the two parties had grown very close. There was a lot of stuff that happened in Washington that really was not very good for the American people. But the establishment crowds in both parties just sort of let it go, let it go. And America was getting further and further away from actually caring about the working class, caring about the American people, really focusing on American sovereignty. I mean, the American people had demanded immigration reform over and over and over again. And politicians from both parties, frankly, to be honest, uh, kept you know paying lip service to it, but never doing anything about it. And Trump, in a way, was an extremist in rejecting this kind of uniparty consensus and breaking through, standing up uh, for things that that no one else was willing to say, you know, totally rejecting the kind of politically correct bullies who sort of wanted to tell you what you were and were not allowed to say. He just sort of laughed at all that. So, you know, although he certainly had his vices and I'm as attuned to those as anyone else, he was an extremist in, in sort of rejecting this idea, well, you're not allowed to say that, uh, which is very unhealthy for democracy. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, in, yeah, he was in his own way an extremist, sure. In your first interview with Hugh Hewitt about your book, The Soul of Politics, Hewitt stated, and I think this goes to the importance both of Leo Strauss and Harry Jaffa, no Strauss, no Jaffa, no Jaffa, no Goldwater, no Goldwater, no Reagan, no Reagan, no fall of the Soviet Union. I, yes. I, I, my mouth dropped when I heard that because it was, oh, it was as if the entire sort of the last 
50, 60 years just kind of came together in this big ball that was right in front of me. And I thought about it. That's an amazing comparison, isn't it? That just shows the importance of this guy, Harry Jaffa, and Leo Strauss that hardly anybody knows about. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But it shows you the power of ideas also. Um, You know, this has been pointed out many times that... that, uh, uh, politics and and uh, you know really society or or any sort of political community operate on a, on a lot of ideas that are just taken for granted, and it's in a way the intellectuals for good and for bad who sort of set those um, ideas, those principles, uh, uh, those narratives that people just sort of take for granted. And once you start digging deeper, you see the real power that comes out of those. And as you've mentioned, if it weren't for Leo Strauss and Harry Jaffa, we'd be in a very different country today. Uh, Glenn, oops, where did my sound go? There we go. Glenn, um, before we get to other questions, I do want to talk about the connection between Jaffa, Lincoln, and Shakespeare. Sure. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So uh, Jaffa came to the study and the, the love of America through Lincoln first and then worked his way back to the founding. And he saw in Lincoln what the Greeks called megalosukia, which means a great-souled man. Jaffa was tremendously impressed by the greatness of Lincoln uh, as a statesman, um, as, a, as a man of the people, but also a man of tremendous virtue and ability who put his own greatness in service of self-government. And through his great prudence uh, and, and humility, but also political ability, navigated the country between these, the, the, on the one hand, the pro-slavery argument, and on the other hand, the extreme fanaticism of the abolitionists who were so consumed by the evil of slavery, which certainly was evil, but so consumed with eradicating the evil of slavery that they would have destroyed the Union and destroyed the Constitution. And Lincoln wanted to save the Union, but only on the principle of human freedom and human equality. And navigating that uh, was, was an extraordinary thing, Jaffa thought. And so Lincoln's statesmanship, reviving the Declaration, reaffirming the truth of human equality, reaffirming the idea of equal natural rights in, in the Declaration, and saving the Union on those principles, uh, just impressed the heck out of Jaffa. And then from there... He worked himself back to thinking, okay, well, what is it that Lincoln was trying to save? And then became a great student of the Declaration and a student of the Founders. Okay, Shakespeare. Uh, that's This is kind of a... Semi- got one minute. <laughs> yeah. well, we got two minutes. <laughs> so Lincoln, Lincoln was also a great student of Shakespeare and learned from Shakespeare both the beautiful and poetic insights into human nature, into tragedy and comedy. But Jaffa, as Lincoln, also saw Shakespeare as a political philosopher, and many of the plays are not appreciated for their very interesting and deep political and philosophical messages. And Jaffa actually wrote a whole book called Shakespeare's Politics with a friend of his and wrote many wonderful essays on Shakespeare's political and philosophical teaching, which is greatly underappreciated. So, five hours with Hugh Hewitt and Larry Arn wasn't enough, and I'm, I'm afraid that 45 <laughs> minutes here uh, don't nearly provide uh, enough time to discuss the, the life and times of Harry Jaffa. Um, I, I guess, I, I just, I'll, I'll throw this out. 
Um, the words radical, the, the Bill of Rights, uh, when it was written, uh, were earth-shaking and radical. Harry Jaffa believes these two documents were the touchstones of what made America uh, so different and, and how the revolution and later American Civil War could not have happened anywhere else successfully. Is, do, you, do you agree with that? Yes. He thought that America, he was a patriot, but he also thought as a philosopher, that America was a kind of a world historical achievement. It was the first time in the modern world that someone had figured out how to solve the problem that had plagued Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years of people persecuting each other, killing each other. And by establishing for the first time the idea of religious liberty, limited government, constitutionalism, and actually putting that into practice, it literally changed the world. They had, they had this fatal flaw of slavery that they could not solve it just, the founders weren't able to do everything at the same time. They had to establish the Union first, and they deferred the terrible injustice of slavery, which then became the great task that Lincoln had to finish, had to complete. Um, and these were, as Johnson thought, sort of world historical moments because they really altered the course of the whole globe. The, the Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa, The Fight for America, published by Encounter, available anywhere. Get it. It's a great reference book for conservatives, and perhaps it's um, time for all Americans to learn more about the great minds Leo Strauss and Harry Jaffa to better be able to understand the context of the American conservative movement. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it for there. Thanks for the visit, Glenn. That's all the time we have for today's show. Uh, thanks so much. Insiders, I hope you enjoyed today's show with Glenn Elmers. I'm taking some time off for the next few weeks while I'm in sick bay, but Ab and others are uh, in our merry band are already working on some great shows. Until next week for Inside Track, this is Bruce Ash and Deb Wilkinson thanking you for listening today and wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon. Jamie Kipper and her father Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, we sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? 
none of that. Only solutions that target insect biology. Using Thank chemistry you, to help Cortero. protect the environment, AM people, and their the voice of... Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com.